This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 30th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. What are the alternatives to foreign aid? What role does economic freedom play in advancing the lot of the very poor? Matt Warner is president of the Atlas Network. He's editor of a new volume, Poverty and Freedom, Case Studies on Global Economic Development. We spoke last week. The last time we spoke, we talked about the outsider's dilemma. Uh, the difficulty of appreciating the needs, uh, desires, and how incentives work within a lot of impoverished areas around the globe. Uh, And now you've produced uh, this book, Poverty and Freedom, Case Studies on Global Economic Development. Um, What emerges here that you think is particularly useful for people who really care about trying to improve the lot of uh, the the very poor on planet Earth uh, and also appreciate this outsider's dilemma? Well, this book sets out a a fairly coherent alternative to foreign aid as a philanthropic effort to reduce poverty around the world. And there are plenty of diverse voices who are looking or calling for alternatives to foreign aid or significant reforms for foreign aid. And what this book does is it takes a lot of the diverse voices uh, from center left uh, to center right to what have you and looks at where there is emerging consensus around um, how to approach combining um, local knowledge, which is super important. Um, expanding individual choice for people and um, relying less on governments and politics as the way for us to be uh, working on making the world a better place. So in these uh, case studies, uh, what do we learn? I know we've talked about some of these already because I know you were working on this book when uh, the last time we spoke, but uh, what what are some case studies that uh, that that really make the case that a lot of foreign aid is simply not productive. Yes. Yeah, so these there's 13 case studies in the book, and each of them represents um, an alternative to foreign aid, which is they represent local think tanks who have local knowledge, their own vision for institutional change. They've identified barriers that are disproportionately harmful to low-income people. And um, they've attracted support from our organization and others that rely on voluntary private donations. And they have achieved those reforms in the local context in in ways that are make a measurable difference for economic freedom. Quick example, there's a gentleman, uh, Papa Coriander is how he's known locally in Burundi. Um, and he's known as the, the with that name because he has a small business that uses coriander to make a variety of products. Um, for years, he could not operate as a formal business. It was uh, institutionally too difficult to um, join the formal sector. And as a result, he was vulnerable to harassment and even was jailed multiple times. Uh, we supported a think tank in Burundi that identified some of the barriers that prevent people like Papa Coriander from joining the formal market and growing. And one of the reforms that they achieved was reducing the uh, cost to get a business license from uh, a third of the average annual income in Burundi 
to uh, a quarter of that. So uh, tw 22 US dollars to get a business license instead of $80. And uh, as a result of that, they saw a 49% increase in the number of business licenses uh, that had uh, th that had been achieved in the country, and uh, and Papa Coriander's story gets even better because he has now formalized and grown his business to a hundred employees. And it's important to note that uh, people whose businesses do not exist in the formal sector uh, quite often have heavily muted incentives to try to make investments to take any kind of risk associated with their business, because if they're not licensed, those things can be taken away. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most um, uh, heartbreaking examples, of course, if you recall the start of the Arab Spring in Tunisia, uh, was the uh, self-immolation of uh, Mohammed Bouazizi, who had been harassed by police repeatedly as a small street vendor and they confiscated his goods. He had no recourse because he wasn't part of the, the the formal legal market. And his last words before setting himself on fire in front of the uh, local government office was, how do you expect me to make a living? And this is a great testament to um, how important economic freedom is to basic human rights. It's It's of little worth... Uh, to look at other human rights, if people do not have the opportunity to uh, not only engage in the marketplace um, in a secure way with legal protections, but to be able to grow. You can't grow a business if, uh, if you're not in the formal sector. Um, a different case study in the book out of India uh, looks at um, a project that achieved formal legal status for street vendors. And um, in in a country with that many people, uh, the impact of of that project by formalizing and giving legal protection and the legal voice to um, a large swath of people who are meeting consumer demand, uh, these are uh, on paper incremental changes, but they have powerful impact across the opportunities that people have to uh, carve their own path out of poverty. You know when. Uh... I spoke a long time ago with Parth Shaw of uh, the Center for Civil Society in India, and he made the made a point that I didn't really appreciate at the time, but I re really appreciate right now. And is, is when a business person is not in the formal sector, as we mentioned, their, their stuff can be taken away, and they can uh, find themselves without any means of earning a living. But also, if you're operating illegally, uh, the amount of stuff that you offer for sale has to be uh, small enough that you can pick it up and run away. Exactly. You can't grow <laughs> if you're not in the in the formal sector. Um, and, you know, an understanding in a local context uh, what the specific barriers are um, and how to go about improving them is something that outsiders and the foreign aid community writ large is really at a disadvantage. Um, and so it really calls for uh, rethinking the way we do that. Let me just share briefly, uh, uh, for those who, who don't follow foreign aid debates, right now there is uh, a huge push to prioritize local knowledge. Uh, you have the new uh, head of World Bank, David Malpass, 
who is uh, recently uh, in a speech announcing the uh, emphasis on creating country platforms, this idea that uh, all of the work that the World Bank is doing should go through the filter of local stakeholder apparatuses. And uh, USAID has a local works project where they're trying to get after uh, this problem. But if you think about current headlines uh, with uh, Trump in Ukraine and Joe Biden in Ukraine, it really is an indicator of how rife the foreign aid community is, um, not necessarily only with uh, you know things that are un unseemly, but just with the inherent power dynamics associated with uh, foreign governments leading uh, local projects and trying to uh, change local societies in ways that are beyond their own understanding. If I can share uh, one other interesting uh, development that I've um, paid uh, particular attention to is the um, the use of the word consent in the uh, aid community has been been bubbling up, um, borrowed, of course, from national discourse on appropriate sexual behavior. But it's looking at um, how appropriate is it for uh, foreign-funded uh, entities to be going into other countries and uh, applying our own centrally designed plans on how to solve their problems? And in that context, what does it mean to uh, respect local culture, to respect the um, prerogatives of individuals? And are we really getting consent um, uh, when we approach it in that way, as opposed to supporting local think tanks led by local leadership who are independent from government and have a cultural understanding of the not only the history, but the, uh, but the nuanced ways that institutions um, need to emerge in order to become more um, um, uh, supportive of economic freedom. There's a related concern, and I, I, I think I don't. You can tell me whether or not this is a, a real one. Uh, how often are Western groups, uh, particularly uh, quasi-government groups like the World Bank, uh, trying to impose desires that uh, the West thinks low-income uh, people in around the world ought to have, rather than the actual day-to-day -day concerns that they do have? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, the United States, for example, has the highest levels of what's called tied aid, and that means uh, conditional aid. And of, and you can imagine that, you know, that isn't necessarily um, nefarious. There's a, um, you know, our, our own democracy demands accountability and understanding of of, uh, you know, putting conditions on the money that we're sending overseas. But the reality is, is uh, you know, the way that gets applied in practice is that we're coming into other countries with a lot of our own priorities. We're using the aid to subsidize a lot of our own companies uh, uh, to be uh, executing the projects and priorities that, that we've brought locally. The recipient governments um, are cooperative for the most part because uh, individually, they have a lot of uh, incentive to do so. Um, there's some examples of uh, as high as 100 percent of, <laughs> of of aid getting siphoned off away from its 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 intended um, uh, targets by you know corrupt practices or uh, conditions by by local government. So the so the government to government model 
and even the foreign government to to local NGO model um, brings with it all that you would expect, both from the cynical side and just the the uh, well-meaning but uh, complicating side of of you know foreign priorities. If you look at the sustainable development goals out of the UN, um, those represent uh, what um, educated, wealthy, uh, urban, heavy sensibilities think about what's important in the world. They don't represent what uh, a very modest, uh, low-income community cares about, is facing, and what the actual opportunities and trade-offs are um, in their community. So in trying to get some consensus, and, and I know we've talked about this before, but it seems uh, problematic when you have these large international organizations that have money to, to hand out, to loan out, uh, and the only people that they're used to dealing with are in the government. Those people within the government might not be credible, but the bigger issue might be that uh, this is not an appropriate uh, way to help people, and they've just got this, you know, these this uh, you know limited basket of tools, um, and they may be incentivized not to view anything outside of those basket of tools as a particularly worthy avenue of exploration. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, and this is why you know my organization, Atlas Network, you, you know, we our mission uh, is not uh, to uh, go after and see foreign aid e e eliminated. As an alternative, we think the best strategy is to expand and demonstrate the efficacy of alternatives. Um, we think that's going to go much further to. Uh, advance what would otherwise be kind of an existential crisis in terms of trying to convince people that the framework within they've devoted their careers is problematic on its face. But what's encouraging, again, is that you have a lot of um, mainstream uh, research and work that is trying to uh, get after what I would call um, a more Hayekian approach that acknowledges the complexity of communities, that understands that progress is a function of uh, largely uncoordinated individual choices. Um, but to date, the model itself makes it very difficult to successfully apply those insights. Um, instead, uh, you know, the three principles that I propose is to one, um, recognize that the outsider problem is something that's inherent in government, whether foreign or domestic, when it comes to the day-to-day -day lives of individuals. Two, independent think tanks are um, an undervalued resource and a strong candidate to be leading local institutional change. And this is something that isn't just uh, recognized by, by my organization, which is um, uh, historically focused on think tanks, but you're, you're seeing... Um, uh, uh, mainstream work that's recognizing the growth in quantity and quality of think tanks. There's a Royal Society of the Arts paper uh, out in the last couple of years that that makes this strong case um, because they're so context sensitive. They understand local culture. And then three, prioritizing think tank work that is focused on expanding individual choices. So in in 
you know, where I work, we talk about economic freedom, but there are mainstream center left uh, groups who who talk about individual agency being very important in local communities. Uh, Duncan Green of Oxfam talks about uh, you know power structures and that l- low income people need the power to make choices. Um, there is, uh, in my opinion, an opportunity to. Um, recognize that we might be using diff- different vocabulary, but there are a lot of insights uh, that the the natural conclusion is something that is very compatible with a free market agenda and one that prizes individual freedom. Matt Warner is editor of the new book, Poverty and Freedom, Case Studies on Global Economic Development. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.